Technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... Augmented reality is being developed in the right moment of time, because I think there is a big debate about ethics and consequence. I think the pendulum already started to swing. Um, I think people are tech-saturated, and they are looking again for um, the real connection. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. Within two years, almost all of us will be using augmented reality every single day. That's the prediction of AR artist and author of Augmenting Alice, Galit Ariel. While initially that prediction will be fulfilled by smartphone-based augmentation of our daily lives, wayfinding, product promotion, and video games, discrete eyewear is just around the corner. And down that next block, contact lenses and other forms of augmented humans. In our lifetimes, we will be able to change the way we look to the rest of our augmented society, filter out what we don't want to see, and see what isn't really there. But before we live in a world that's one step closer to the singularity, that melding of man and machine, we need to ask ourselves how changing how the world perceives us changes us. She dropped by the Futurhythmic Studio to discuss the need for a set of ground rules for looking at the world with this new set of eyes. The internet and especially social media obviously created a new lens for us to uh, amplify and magnify our sense of identity. Right. And that's what technology is. It is a lens. And if in the past we were limited by the mediums we had, uh, so let's say if you were to be a celebrity, you needed to be a film star or on the press. And today you just need access. Everybody's an Instagram model. Everybody's an Instagram model. Everybody can potentially thrive. And everybody's image is out in the open. It's very rare to see people that don't have some sort of of a digital profile. We're all a brand. Yeah. So what that means is that with this amplification, there's privacy issues, there's image issues, and people are, are starting to balance and mediate. You know, what does it mean to be a public persona? What does it mean to be a digital persona? Persona. And what is the private in all of that? There's a bit of um, disconnect between the two. A lot of people understand that the online image is A, it's something you curate while your inner identity is different. And that's all manageable because you can go online and offline, or at least hopefully manageable for most people. But because we are constantly on, we are constantly connected, um, it's becoming less manageable than in the past. And when we talk about a technology like augmented reality, where the blending between the digital and physical will be so connected, it will be one and the same eventually, that will also influence the disconnect or the connection between our digital identity and physical identity. So we would have the ability to project into the real world that Facebook-like veneer that we want the world to see. And if... The real world starts to see us the way we want to be seen as opposed to the way we really are. Then I can imagine that changes psychologically how we feel about ourselves. So there's always, you know, the good bit, the bad and the ugly scenario for each um, 
for each angle. Um, and when we talk about identity, uh, the good thing is that, yes, we will be able to be our authentic self and maybe add layers to ourselves that we want projected to certain people. We'll be able to have multiple layers of identity, rich identity, let's say, that can that can help us actually be more connected to our inner self. So I could have, instead of dressing up to work, because we already wear our identities physically in the physical world. So I have... No, most people will have their professional selves, their social selves, their romantic self, etc. Right. Like I, I put this shirt on as opposed to a T-shirt because I didn't want you to think of me as a slob. Exactly. So it's not like multi-identities or layered identities don't exist. AR, in a good scenario, might help us be able to be all these things at once without uh, much effort. So I will be able to have my little tribes and clans in the physical space without having to change my appearance. I can be all of these at once. And that is great. But we also run the risk of believing our own press. And whether that's an existing problem or it's a problem 5, 10, 15 years from now when we can digitally alter our appearance on a per person basis. I want that person to see me in a shirt. I want this person to see me in a t-shirt because I'm a little more laid back with that person than another. That's all well and good. But if we start identifying who we truly are based upon the veneer we want the world to see, that's a psychological issue. That's not a technological issue. For sure. This is, let's say, the bad part of it, because uh, we are also losing the ability to have intentional transformation, right? Because it's going to be so easy to become whatever we want, we might actually disconnect from who we really are. So you're talking about a personal growth idea that there was a time in our history where if you wanted to change yourself, you had to make some very serious personal growth decisions that now can be circumvented by the ability to just change the way the world sees you as opposed to how you truly are. It will allow us to transform more easily, but perhaps be less committed and connected to our identity. So let's say if I want to look very cool and have full body tattoos, it's zero risk with zero effort. And I could have my full body tattoos appearing in front of other people, but I really am not, I'm not tattooed. So You're not that cool. I'm not, I am tattooed, <laughs> <laughs> but not full, full body cool tattooed. Oh, come on, go for it. <laughs> No, too old at this point. But uh, what? Isn't that exactly the, the, the AR conversation that we're having here? What do you mean too old? Isn't it just a psychological? Isn't that a state of mind? Yeah. In my mind, I am too old. <laughs> ah, now does AR help with that? Um, again, AR can help with that, but you will still have the disconnect. So in already in the digital medium, we can beautify ourselves, right? We can, we can appear cooler. Does it make people really sincerely feel cooler or better about themselves? No, it's actually creating the opposite um, sense of disconnect and, and we're seeing depression and mental issues rising um, because of this disconnect, because people are actually using technology as a tool to avoid connection rather than connecting. There's even um, a condition called Snapchat dysmorphia, where people 
um, get so obsessed with the beautifying filters they have online, they go to plastic surgeons and ask to be uh, altered physically in accordance to their selfie image because they want to look as good as their digital filter. I had a very similar experience. I spent 18 years in TV land wearing makeup every day. And it was the most surreal moment of my day to take it off and see what I truly looked like underneath all of the paint. This is an extension of that. But at the same time, that makeup is a very basic technology that we've been using for thousands of years to augment our realities in the way others perceive us. And again, if you want to go really philosophical, you are truly beautiful in your beautified state right? It, it is authentic. It is real, although modified. And you were truly less beautified in your non-beautified state. So the idea of what is real and what is not is also a big question. Is the physical untouched more natural or is the digital touched more real? Are they both as real? And how are we going to kind of think about these identities. Well, why ought we to be even concerned about augmented reality changing our sense of self if we've had these basic low-tech ways of doing exactly that for thousands of years? Haven't we already kind of wrapped our heads around the idea that um, it's a variation of the clothes make the man versus the man makes the clothes? Um, yes. Um, in one hand, I would agree. This is just, again, a magnifying lens of what we already have. On the other hand, augmentation, uh, like most technologies, is exponential. We are still on the physical realm, we're still limited. So we can put makeup on, we can maybe perhaps um, do cosmetic surgery to enhance ourselves, but we are limited to our physical constraints. Whereas in the future of AR with your Snapchat filter analogy, we could be walking down the street and literally have doggy ears hanging off the sides of our heads. Well, doggy ears is not as even bad. It's even it's it's slightly amusing. Perhaps it's it's a little bit. Um, well, it certainly tells me something about somebody walking down the street who wants others to see their doggy ears. Exactly. But what happens if I walk down the street and I have a complete different appearance? I'm masqueraded as a different um, person altogether. So I'm actually uh, disabling the people in the public space knowing who I am, right? And if we talk, and I talk a little bit about it in, in my book, but um, there's the idea of adding in augmentation, but there's also the idea of eliminating. So I could decide that there are certain people I don't want to see anymore. You know, it can be like a great ex-boyfriend eliminator problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, which might sound great or even funny, you know, some people, you know, if you're not a Trump supporter, you don't have to see him. Or you don't have to see other Trump supporters. So now you've got a third of the entire population of the United States blanked out. Yeah. If you're a Trump supporter, maybe you don't want to see the minorities or you don't want to see the foreigners and, uh. and what happens then. So in one hand, um, again, the idea of, of augmenting the reality is... Uh, requires some sort of um, a basic uh, societal code that we haven't established yet. 
because we have some sort of um, an understanding now about what is proper and not on the internet. The internet kind of swirls between, you know, it should be open for everyone, completely democratic system, governments and, and bodies should not influence it or regulate it at all into the highly regulated um, space. And that's already um, a big debate about privacy and freedom and data and the purpose of, of the online world. I think we have managed to, to create some sort of societal understanding that certain things that don't or shouldn't happen in the real world, like pedophilia, shouldn't happen online either. So if we have those basic coded rules and regulations that we as a collective have decided are appropriate, we want to apply those to augmented reality. When we do that, that's usually the result of the pendulum swinging way too far in the opposite direction first. So even right now, you know, when I, I started talking about, you know, regulating the augmented space, there is backlash and, and there are people saying, look, you know, this is, you know, don't stop us playing. You know, this is an open space. This is what it should be experimental and open and free, especially because this technology is is just emerging. You know, don't start giving regulations. But we're seeing how quickly, even with a very, I don't want to say basic level, but very entry level AR, like Pokemon Go, we already saw violations in the physical space where uh, people's houses got broken into and there are lawsuits. You had the Anne Frank Museum as a, a spot to collect pokies and they had to manually edit out certain areas on the globe to prevent that kind of inappropriate activity. But it didn't happen until after we went, oh, right, that's a problem. Yeah, until people swam to the middle of the ocean and drowned looking for Pokemons, for example, fell off cliffs or went into traffic because, you know, the truth is, you know, human beings are pretty gullible and participatory beings. Right. Individually, we're wonderful, but as a collective, we're just awful. Well, we, we can be awful and wonderful, both as collectives and individuals. But these are things that we really need to understand because we are detaching from behind the screen consequences into real world consequences. This technology sits in the real world, has real world consequences, and we need to give it the same amount of thought and depth as, as we have for any real world physical creation even though it's virtual. Mm -hmm. Being virtual or being digital doesn't mean it's not real. If it's perceived by people as real, is if it drives them to real actions, it is as real to have an augmented pet as a real pet. So what happens if I have an augmented pet and I mutilate, mutilate it? What would the consequences be in the real world to mutilating a virtual pet? Yeah. So I suppose that the bigger question is, what's the intent behind that? What's the impact of doing that sort of virtual activity in the first place? And is it the same thing as mutilating a real pet, which when we see small children do that, we know that that's a bad marker for future negative behavior. It needs to be curtailed. But I suppose your, your point is, is that it would be easy to argue that you could use that virtual augmented activity as an outlet so that you're not actually doing this sort of thing. That could be one argument to it. 
it could be an argument um it would be incorrect though because they let's say it like that there is no absolute in ethics in general and that applies to to um techno ethics as well there is no absolute positive or or negative um scenario everything is about context right um is prolonging life always a positive thing sometimes yes sometimes no it depends in the situation um is having um a pet a virtual pet as an outlet let's say and i'm going a little bit extreme sure well, definitely going a little bit extreme but you know some people will say hey it's an outlet but they actually proven that in cases of pedophilia for example this is why you're not allowed to have um virtual pedophilia right which which is not harming any real children right but people that actually practice uh certain actions in in a virtual state not everyone but some people and some actions um, will not necessarily uh, be cured by their drives a lot of the times it will push their drives further so it goes back to the video game um the old video game is is first shooter video games bad or good well the answer is it could be an outlet in a lot of cases and unrealistic for a lot of people but it's also you know um becomes for some people a very realistic and captivating state of mind and gives them a lot of knowledge about um how it, they feel it will be like shooting and it makes them lose a lot of empathy because if all you do all day is go and shoot very realistic figures the distance between that and shooting people in real life is a little bit shorter. I'm not saying this is what transforms, but there is a correlation. So we need to be very careful with augmented reality about what it is that we're putting into it. We can't prevent anything, everything. Mm -hmm. We can't make it all white and cute. And, and that's how we'll make it perfect. Uh, but we need to be aware that people perceive digital experiences behind the screens as real and they will perceive digital experiences in the physical world as very real and as an integral part of their lives. There are virtual models already. There are virtual um, music performances in China and in Tokyo. People are converting their emotional connection to virtual beings much easier than they would years ago. We saw that with DJ Marshmallow giving the world's first virtual concert in Fortnite and a million people turned up. Or was it 10 million? And not only that, but those people stuck around for the 10 minutes concert and then paid real money for virtual merchandise like you would at any other concert. They had that kind of visceral reaction. They were willing to shell out real world money. Yeah. So again, the, this um, fine line between real and unreal uh, is changing. So that our idea that real is physical and digital is unreal and thus perhaps has less consequence no longer exists. The, the digital realm is embedded already in our lives, let's say at 20, 30, 40 percent. And once we'll have um, augmented reality embedded into our everyday lives, we will reach 50, maybe 60%. We might believe, and we do actually see it already, that we believe 
digital content a lot of the time versus personal experiences. We will believe what we see online, the deep fake videos that people fall for mm -hmm. very quickly, because this is where our um, brain structure lies. You know, seeing is believing. If we see it, if we experience it, even if not in person, we will believe it. But isn't that just another pendulum that'll swing the other way? Deep fakes right now, first of all, aren't very mainstream. Uh, we know that we've seen uh, a lot of headlines related to it um, due to pornography, that largely you're seeing celebrity deep fakes in adult films. And you had a reaction from the adult industry to saying, we're not going to support this. We're going to not put this on our website. Uh, whereas there will always be websites that will allow that. Um, but it, it took an industry to say, no, we're not going to let this happen. It, the, the cat was already out of the bag. Pandora's box was already open. The genie was out of the bottle. But it took an industry to push back against that. I spoke to uh, Dan Robbins, who is the head UX uh, guy at HTC with their augmented and virtual reality divisions. It's his job to turn this into an industry for HTC. And I was fascinated that in our conversation, he was, first of all, he agrees with you that within two years, we will see most of us use AR in one way, shape or form, whether it be wayfinding or what have you. But also he put a lot of time in an effort into focusing on the ethics of it all. And I was really interested in that because I would have assumed that a large corporate entity's primary focus on any research would be monetization, uh, applied science. Yet here was this guy saying, we need to think about the ethics of this. I think the pendulum already started to swing. Um, I think people are tech saturated and they are looking again for um, the real connection. This is where I'm happy because I do feel that augmented reality is being developed in the right moment of time, because I think there is a big debate about ethics and consequence, both from the industry that is seeing the outcome of some of the things that happened. Uh, I'm talking about political shifts. I'm talking about manipulation of data. Um, and fabrication of data in a lot of uh, sense that is harming platforms and industries in their trust level with clients and with consumers. Your alternative facts yeah. is impacting social media's uptake. And also it just uh, unfortunately doesn't work. People don't work in predictable ways. So people don't behave in exponential and linear ways. So. If you talk about consumerism, for example, like for for the last 10 years since the crisis, um, we've been pushed again to to purchase, right? To to better the economy by by buying a lot of stuff. Buy, buy, buy. And I think people are starting to reject it. People are starting to to reevaluate what brings them joy what brings them meaning if you look at netflix there's um is it marie kondo oh marie kondo marie kondo oh please enough with the marie kondo this is not my personal opinion but the <laughs> fact that that she's because i can't have less but uh the fact that that she's booming right now is is a mirror to the fact that people are looking to declutter their lives they're looking for new ways to create joy because 
just consuming things doesn't necessarily bring you joy. So people are asking now, what will bring me joy? And you're seeing a lot of detox. A lot, a lot of the, the current trends are reconnecting to your body, detoxing, uh, uncluttering your life, looking for meaningful jobs rather than paying jobs. So we're looking at this kind of um, a very, very soft age self-benefit movement happening. Mm -hmm. And the big brands are also reacting to that because this is what the consumer wants. So that pendulum that's swinging from one side to the other right now is not just in the, the materialism of the 21st century, but to your point, um, the tech industry as well. And uh, one of the things that I love about my Apple Watch is that I have set it up so that if my pocket vibrates, I know that that notification really isn't that important. It's probably a Facebook reply or a tweet from some guy who wants to yell at me about something he didn't like on the internet. But if my wrist vibrates, I know it's important. It's probably a family member with a message that I need to address right away. So I'm using that as a filter for my tech world. Augmented reality will provide us with that opportunity as well. You and I talked about walking through a market and seeing pop-ups that may or may not be more clutter in our lives than we want. And we need to use this technology as a way of ensuring that the important stuff gets in front of us, but the stuff that's not important can be pushed to the background. Yeah, we need to to definitely be able to give the, the person using the technology choice in how to use it and when to use it. The last thing you want to have in real life is pop-up ads. Right, like we talked about, I don't want to look at an orange while wearing my AR glasses, and next thing you know, I got an ad hovering over my orange for uh, an orange juice of some sort. And some people might still want to do it um, because that was the pathways for for free access, right, in the internet. Right. But the, the question is whether or not ethically or even from a consumer perspective that will be acceptable anymore. And if not, what is the alternative? So you bring up a very valid point, which is we also will have an opportunity with AR to sell our eyeball time to the highest bidder. I hope we'll be smart enough to, to ask for a good exchange rate for our eyeballs because so <laughs> far we've been paying them or either directly by subscription or indirectly by allowing them to to harvest our data right if you're not paying for the product you are the product exactly so if william gibson is right and that the future is here it's just not evenly distributed for those of us who can't afford a 1500 iphone 10 we have options, uh, subscription-based options like what you talk about, the ability to pay for that expensive slab of glass on a, a term, two years, three years, on a contract, what have you. But similarly, we have the ability to um, offload the cost of things in exchange for our time or attention. And I wonder if, in particularly the early stages before the economies of scale of AR ramp up enough so that it is an inexpensive technology for the masses, that we will, in fact, see some people walking down the street where they have to see that pop-up billboard ad because that's the cost of having the technology on their face in the first place. I really hope that that will not happen and that... Um I don't want to say governments, but policymakers and, and the audience and the digital citizens of the future world uh, will 
prevent this from happening because as I said, this is a filter that you're putting between a person and the actual world. If I don't have a choice in how I experience my physical reality in an unmediated way or a non-consensual way, in my mind, this is beyond an unethical or immoral uh, breach. It's, it's actually a, a, civil, a civil right breach. But the person on the other side of that argument would say, it's the only way I can afford these glasses that whenever I walk up to the guy whose name I keep forgetting, it now reminds me that's the cost of doing business, that behind him there's going to be a Pepsi ad because Pepsi's paying my way to be able to be a 21st century digital citizen. So um, I will disagree with that. Um, it's a very uh, common argument. I call it the necessary evil excuse. Well, this is the necessary evil. And I want to say, well, is it necessary and is it possible to do it otherwise? And I think we're already getting to a point that connectivity in general is becoming a common, right? Just like electricity, just like, the, just like having clean water and clean e electricity, uh, having clean connectivity uh, is something that is the civic right of any citizen. We live in Canada where it gets cold. And we have rules that state the electricity provider cannot cut off your electricity. The natural gas provider cannot cut off your source of heat in the winter. And that was only a rule that was put in place in this country 15, 20 years ago. And up until that point, people who didn't pay their bills froze. It took people literally dying before we made those rules law we're likely going to have to do the same thing with AR. Yeah, I believe that with connectivity, we will have to. I mean, there's there's a very famous argument that a lot of people have when they see homeless people, for example, with mobile phones or smartphones. And their first thought is like, well, you know, if they can afford that, why should I give them my $1, $2 mm -hmm. at all? Because this is a luxury. Well, this comes to prove that connectivity is no longer a luxury. It's a basic need to be part of society today. I will challenge, um, besides people that choose to be off the grid for their own uh, reasons and choices, I will challenge the idea that it is even possible to be a functional part of society without being connected at all. Um, having a bank account, trying to pay for anything, trying to, to use any civic utility without being on the grid is virtually impossible regardless of your financial status. This is part of being a citizen today. Being digital is not an option. We cannot opt out of it anymore. So connectivity is a common right. It took us about 100 years for electricity to become mainstream enough that we decided that it was a basic human need, particularly in parts of the world where it gets cold at night. We can extrapolate from that how long it would take for us to decide that connectivity is a basic human right in relation to adoption rates. So if it took us 100 years for electricity to get to this level, but uh, and it took us 150 years for the telephone to receive the widespread adoption it did, but it only took Twitter two years to get the same number of people to use it, I can imagine the accelerated rate of adoption would mean that We'll start calling connectivity a basic human right, not 100 years from now, not 50 years from now, 
but probably within our lifetimes. Yeah, definitely. For better or worse, technology or connectivity or online connectivity is not something that we can regress from. So then do we then extrapolate if it'll take us 20 years to determine that connectivity is a basic human right? At what point do we determine that our right to control what we see in front of our faces in augmented reality is also a basic human right? I would hope that that will be part of the guiding principles of the industry itself. As it matures, as opposed to at some point we have to put our foot down. Yes, because I think if we wait for five years or, or even two, three years before we establish this and we are already knees deep into this hybrid state of real physical slash digital realm, that will be too late when we won't be able to tell the difference anymore between digital and physical. And that does not take a lot. We won't be able to go back and, and do the unnecessary evil on plotting. It's even taking people time now to, to have an uproar against social media. It took them a while. Like people knew their privacy is being violated, but they accepted it. It was the necessary evil. What do you want? I get to be connected to all my friends. What's the harm in that? And only when the harm came, you know, landing on their heads, um, like a five pound 2016 elections, uh, they understood what the power of it is and started to doubt it. A lot of people still didn't opt out because they're already inside the system. Well, you, you basically can't. You, you get, you, we all have that friend who canceled their Facebook account and then you basically never heard from them again. In the 21st century, you can't really opt out from these technologies and expect to maintain your position as a 21st century citizen. I know people that opted out and they claim to have um, happy lives. I say they oh, claim. I, I bet they are. That's the crazy thing about it. Like we have all those studies that show that. Um, They're happier we, than that, us. Right, that they are happier. That uh, when we see negativity on our social feed, it has a ripple effect into our lives and the lives of those around us. There are very strong arguments for why we need to unplug. And I wonder if this is part, to come full circle back to your thesis, that we are starting a backlash against the pervasiveness of tech in our lives and that we need to recognize limitations have to be placed on it. The problem is, is that those limitations generally are enacted by policymakers, as you point out, and those policymakers tend to be government organizations. And if the investigation into the 2016 election hacking and the social media uh, role that it played is any indication, the politicians responsible for grilling Mark Zuckerberg clearly were out of their element. And these are not the people to be making policy. But there are new people in the government today in the U.S. and I think across the globe, um, a lot of governments and a lot of uh, city halls have CTOs. Um, so we are seeing this mind shift from policymakers, but it is policymakers traditionally to change policies. Uh, we're seeing how users are changing policies. So the biggest backlash for for Facebook, for example, was the amount of people that that logged off Facebook and then they started acting. You know, I don't think they're so scared of the policymakers as they are from their user base. I think they're more concerned about that. 
I do believe that that consumers and users and citizens, either directly in a, in related to a platform or not, can ask for more and better because they are very, very valuable for the policymakers. And I think there are a lot of people uh, within these companies. And I had some big discussions with some tech ethicists that said, you know, it's useless to talk to Google. Uh, the people there are, you know, they're too scared to get sacked. And I said, I disagree. I think there are good people um, in these companies. I don't believe in these faceless monsters. Uh, every company is is made by people. We saw in Google, you know, if we want to take them as an example, because they're very heavily built around data surveillance, obviously. We saw that in numerous occasions, people at all levels refused to to go ahead with with company policy that they found unethical and it made them reverse a lot of decisions that will be financially costing for them such as the uh, artificial intelligence work that google has been doing and they had employees essentially walk out saying you're working with the u.s government you're working with the pentagon on this we don't want our research to be used as a war machine and that forced Google's hand. Exactly. And and on equality issues and gender issues as well. So I think people are becoming a lot more socially conscious at all ages, at all levels, on all topics. I think, you know, we 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 have we are I don't want to say we are woke, but we are waking up slowly from the big winter sleep of of consumption and we are trying to save the planet and trying to live more meaningful lives and trying to better the human condition truly I, I really see that happening the boomer generation invented the internet the gen x generation made it what it is today yeah i apologize um well <laughs> we, we are what we are <laughs> but i suspect that it's the millennial generation and generation z that's largely going to be responsible for bringing the pendulum back to the center and I think they're doing it. I think we're, you know, I think um, I apologize on behalf of Generation X. <laughs> I do. <laughs> the lost generation, indeed. Um, but uh, when you see what's happening with, with young adults today, the level of activism, the level of, of, you know, it doesn't matter how many products you try to push down their throat, they are unimpressed and unfazed by BS. And they are walking out of schools demanding for better green policies. They are using all these tools that we, I'm sorry to say we, but let's say the elder, older generations created for them as tools. They are using it as tools, but for their own causes, for their own agendas. And that is beautiful. This is exactly what digital was meant to be. So this is why I'm optimistic in the sense that Eventually, consumers or users, or better yet, humans, do what humans do. They act in non-linear, non-exponential ways. They use technology for what they need it to be. So when we create new technologies, we have to take that under consideration for better or worse. Galit, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. Billy Ariel is a self-described digital hippie, the author of Augmenting Alice, and the premier guest for our episode titled Augmenting Reality and the Future of Identity. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com.
The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.